Welcome to episode three of Analytics Podcasts on Investment Skill. I'm Rick Damasio, the Chief Exec of Analytics, and I'm joined by the data scientist and sports psychologist, Tim Hartless. In this episode, we will be looking at people and data. And this is a nice topic for us to do because it was data that actually really brought us together. We, we started working together four or five years ago. And I think you were looking for somebody who was working in the world of sport because you felt that sport was doing a good job of using data and communicating decisions about data. And you were interested in using sport as an example for how you might be able to use data to communicate in business. Slightly disparagingly, but I used to say that sport was 20 years ahead of the world of fund management in the sense that you'd worked out a long time ago and continuing to work out, mind you, um, how to use data for training and coaching purposes. And also, you know, in a much broader sense of obviously identifying talent as well. But our world of investment management was still very much using old traditional ways and hadn't really adopted data in a meaningful way before. That's changed in the last five years, but certainly when we first got together, it was certainly a very different environment. I think in our conversations over the last five years, that is something I've noticed is the wave seems to be building. And you've been running analytics for how many years is it now? 20. We were about 15 years too early. And now it really feels like that the time is here. Uh, certainly, you know, no, no question. No, no question. That, about that must be quite an exciting place to be. It is now, yeah. But it is, you know, really heartening to see how adoption is picking up and at the pace at which it's being adopted so, as well. So you actually have data to show that people are becoming more interested in data? <laughs> Personal experiences uh, and scars as well. So, um, yes. You know, wh- what I'd like to do here is, you know, to start by going back to the beginning and, and thinking yeah. about, well, but what is the purpose? It's, you know, the data isn't an end in itself. Why, why is it? important why is it being adopted and you know and I'll, I'll get the conversation going you know from from our side I see data as a way of identifying in an objective and an empirical way the things that yes. we're good at and the things that we need to get better at um, yeah. and that ultimately it's about process improvement and that without yes. data the mind plays tricks. You know, you, we all think yep. we're good at yep. something and we draw a veil over the things that we're not so good at. But what data does is it shines a light and it makes us think clearly about where our strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, do you see that in the same way, Tim, as, as the main purpose? I think you've really referred to it when you're speaking to about the idea that the mind plays tricks because decision-making is still a human process. And as human beings, we have got to understand the way that our mind works. And we have to understand our strengths and our weaknesses in order to make consistently good decisions. And I think this is where data comes in. Maybe if I can just branch out and and tell a story. When I was young, I mean really young, I might have been four or five years old, my mother gave me a book called Tim's Aeroplanes. And it was a story about a boy called Tim who owned an aeroplane. And because I was so young, I began to believe that 
the boy in this book was actually me, because he was called Tim. And I started to believe that I owned an aeroplane myself. And whenever an aeroplane flew over our garden, I would think to myself, oh, there's my aeroplane. And, you know, I, I just had this belief that I owned an aeroplane. And I never really tested that belief against anything. This belief just persisted. And one day I was standing at the window with a friend and an aeroplane flew overhead. And I just casually said to my friend, uh, I wonder if that's my aeroplane. And my friend turned to me and said, you don't have an aeroplane. And in that moment, as he said it, I suddenly realized that I did not, in fact, own an aeroplane. <laughs> and I, I, can still I can still remember the disappointment. Yeah. But I can also remember that moment of, of reality of being exposed to a fact and suddenly changing my mind. And I think that's what data is supposed to do for us, is it's supposed to allow us to confront these comforting and comfortable beliefs. And it's supposed to allow us to test our beliefs and hopefully then end up at a more accurate and more useful belief about the world. I've actually got... Uh many examples, but my equivalent of your aeroplane story is from the world of investment. It, it does not have any of the charm of it, but this example brings the point out that you make, but as relevant to the investment world, is that we analyze um, all the, um, the buying selling decisions that, that the fund managers yeah. take, and we then analyze those decisions in terms of whether they typically will buy a stock after a period of strength when it's when it's gone up a lot or weakness when it's gone down a lot and if you were to ask most fund managers they would say quite categorically that their style is is absolutely to buy into strength or they're what we call a contrarian, which is somebody who goes against the herd and buys into weakness. These are extremely strongly held opinions about how they see themselves and their decision-making and their processes. And yet when we look at the data, we find that we have not found a single example where someone is exclusively one way or the other. And virtually everybody is two-thirds um, into strength and, two and a third into weakness or vice versa. Even though they passionately believe that they're one or the other, they will still do a third of their trades with a completely opposite style to the one that they believe that they adopt. What is sometimes astonishing is that when we then look to see, well, what, you know, which, which of these two styles is the most effective, we find that the one that they're least aware of is the most effective. So, if, wow. for example, where they two-thirds or 70% of their buying will be into things which had already gone up a lot, yeah. and the third which they bought um, when they'd been, you know, when the, after a period of dull performance, say those ones had... had subsequently recovered very strongly and could actually be their best trades and when we when we present this data they're just astonished because that is amazing because a they think that they're a momentum investor 
yes. and that they don't actually do any of these these um, contrarian trades. Yes. And then to find that actually the contrarian trades may actually be their, their, oh, the good their biggest source, the good ones or their best ones, yeah. just completely flummoxes them. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, this is a, a sort of sharp end example of your Tim and the aeroplane story, mm. you know, which and yours is much, you know, sweeter and has more charm and mine's more brutal. Mm. But, you know, it's exactly the same point. You know, you believed you owned aeroplanes. Yeah. These fund managers believed that they were, say, a momentum investor. Yeah. Context is absolutely vital. You've got to be able to present a piece of information within context. Yes. Now, what I have learned... Of, you know, through these years, almost the single most important lesson that I've actually learned is that in order for data to be adopted, and by adopted means that the recipient of it, in your case, a sports person, in my case, a fund manager or a pension fund or an investor of one form or another, in order for that, for the recipient of the data to use it is that context and relevance becomes the bridge between the data processing and the analytical process and adoption. Yeah. And without context and relevance, it just it just falls flat. Yeah. I've sort of observed this through the years, but never really understood it mm. until a really, really smart client of ours decided to give up the investment world and, and he became a physics teacher. Right. And and I, I caught up with him and I said, how's it going? And he said, it's, he said, it's just fascinating. He said, he said, I've been studying the psychology of learning. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, if only I'd have known this in my investment career when I was running teams of, of, of um, traders. Mm. He said that what I've learned is that, is that human beings can only absorb a new piece of information if they understand the context of that piece of information and can relate it to something they already know and he said as a teacher he said i spend my time finding out what they already know so i can then drop in the next piece of information okay and i think that that ultimately that is both our jobs yes our jobs are to find out what is relevant to them what is it they already know and how are they going to adopt this new piece of information yeah. and unless the new piece of information fits into a framework that they already have it's just going to it's just going to lie redundant and to pick up on your point there rick when you said they have to fit that new information into a system of knowledge that they already have and that is um, a psychologist, Piaget, had this idea about when we learn, there are two processes to learning. There's assimilation and there's accommodation. And assimilation means we have to take the information in. And then accommodation means that we have to fit it into our existing structure of knowledge. We have to accommodate it in some way. And obviously that may mean just building on top of that structure, or it may mean adjusting that structure in some way. Um, and I think it's quite a nice framework to understand how we learn and it helps us see the objective of data because our job as data scientists is to deliver information to people in a form that they can assimilate. So first of all, it, it needs to be digestible so people can take it in. We, we can't just have this massive um, dump of numbers and information. We have to have done some work on the data system so that it delivers data in a way that um, is digestible, that can be taken in. And then secondly, we have to 
delivered to a way, to people in a way that they can also accommodate. And as you say, and I, I think uh, the example of the, the physics teacher is a very good one, that you have to know what they know so that you can then give them, almost if they were building a, a house out of Lego, you have to be able to give them the brick that they need next. You use the phrase, well, you know, we need to do some work. Yeah. Well, you know, some work is a considerable amount. And getting to that point of being able to contextualize the data, to be able to make it relevant and actionable, is enormously difficult and time-consuming. Yeah. And it's an iterative process in itself. It's not just a case of just filling, you know, boxing the numbers with pretty colors. Yeah. You've got to understand that, you know, what's important and what they're trying to do. What I think is important, and this may, you know, be a surprise, is that although this topic is data, what we're really talking about is people. Yes. The data is utterly irrelevant unless it's adopted and used and has meaning yep. and, and has the ability to change someone's behavior. Yep. Because I think and, the worst thing you can do is just throw data at a problem. You're going to waste time, you're going to waste money, and you're going to create confusion. Exactly. And you're just going to annoy people. Quite reasonably, they're going to yeah. say, well, you know, what do you know about me? You know, you, you, know, you just it. crunch some numbers. You don't, yeah. you don't understand me. And, and, and I think that, that that's very often overlooked, is that a lot of people like to believe that, that data analytics is a sort of plug-and-play solution. Right. That you can just, you know, crunch the numbers and then someone's going to log on to a website and Agreed. then out, the un- out, out comes the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost insulting you know, because, I mean, it would be like saying to a scratch golfer, you know, if you log on to this website, I can knock four shots off your round. Yes, yes. No, I mean, it's a nonsense. Yeah. It's, it's a complete nonsense, particularly given that we both deal with the elite in our industries. Yes. Now, you know, we should sort of spend brief moment discussing uh, people's reactions to data because yes. I think it's instructive. Certainly from our world, when we first meet people, you know, we deliver the data we're more interested in watching them and seeing how they react. Yeah. You know, it's that if they sort of lean forward and they and are curious and there's an element of energy in the, in the conversation, we know that, that they're our sort of person and they want, to, they want to adapt and learn. Yes. And then conversely, we've had so many instances where people sit back, they cross their arms yep. and they say, well, you know, I don't want this. Yeah. I mean, if, if you had similar situations or maybe it's just my appalling delivery, I don't know. No, I, I have. And I remember. Oh, thank goodness you said that. I thought you were going to uh, say no. I, I haven't. No, Rick, really it's just you. Appalling delivery. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Never had it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I have a very clear memory of sitting in a a meeting with a coach, and we were talking about fast fast bowlers. And what we were trying to work out is we had a a bunch of matches coming up in a short space of time, and we were going to need to rotate those fast bowlers to make sure that each of them had an optimal workload over the next three three or so weeks. I actually watched the coach's eyes glazing over as he decided, this is too complicated for me to try and work out. I'm just going to take it one day at a time. And feeling that frustration of, of realizing that I hadn't got my message across, but also it was a valuable experience because I think I realized what I'd done wrong. And this is a person who already had tremendous complexity that he was trying to deal with. You know, he had every kind of complexity from 
managing personal relationships, trying to judge performance, uh, trying to analyze technique, understand what the opponent was doing. And here I was trying to dump more complexity on top of him. And Mm -hmm. he actually just got to the point where, you know, to, to use that term assimilate, he just couldn't take any more in. So he shut me down. And I think that was quite a useful experience for me. I can, you know, I can see it. And it's, you know, it's, it's true in our world as well. We all think about Google and, you know, and Amazon and all these sorts of great things, ch- crunching out billions and billions of pieces of information and using it for, to get you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. Fine. But, you know, neither of us live in that world. You know, we live in a world of elite players. Yes. And, and getting into their heads and getting them to absorb it is just really important. Yes, and I think and, also and the elite player is already performing at a very high level. So you don't have those easy gains to be made. You don't have those low-hanging fruits to just pick up. And, and averages don't apply to the elite because they're not average. So it does mean that we, we have to be much more rigorous, we have to be more complex, we have to be more detailed in the conclusions that we draw from our data because we can't just apply average principles to this individual. I think that's absolutely right. Now, I'm going to use the average word, but, um, but I'm going to take it in a different context. Is that the easiest thing that we could do is produce a set of averages. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you, when you do this, on average, you get this hit rate, okay. you get this, you get it right and this number. Yeah. And then when you do this, you get it wrong on average. I've found that the averages and totals in our world in particular are really misleading. Yeah. They look pretty on the page. They're perfectly capable of being sprayed in pink and blue, but they're really highly dangerous. And the reason being is that is that the financial world is the epitome of what statisticians call non-stationary. In plain English, that means that nothing ever stays the same. Right. So you have to get behind the totals. You have to get behind the averages okay. and look at the time series okay. and look at how that type of decision has worked and not worked in the past. Okay. Nothing in our world works forever and constantly yeah because frankly if it did everyone would be just sitting on the beach and calling their broker and making trades yes, i mean then it would yes. be just ridiculously yes. easy and you have to be able to stand back from averages and totals look at the time series and make sure that the current experience corresponds with those averages and totals i so think that I'm time great... series is so interesting yeah, go on. and i suppose what you're doing with time series is you're trying to figure out this causes that because when you can predict what causes something, you can then start to control the future. Yeah, or or or, or play, you know, or, or play into it, or avoid it. There's more nuance in the way you use time series than the way we use time series. But what I was thinking about is that I think something else that human beings to to go back to your phrase, the mind plays tricks. Something that human beings are not terribly good at is understanding what causes what. We're not good at understanding the difference between correlation and causation. And one of my favorite examples of this is the the chant that the U.S. football fans had um, in the, uh, I think it was the 2010 World Cup, where they would chant, I believe, I believe, I believe that we will win. 
And what they found, had found historically, is that there was a close correlation between believing that they would win and their team winning. Their conclusion is that it was the belief of the fans that caused the victory of the football team. Now, there's no mechanism that we know that you know <laughs> causes this to happen. It was <laughs> a, a, more, <laughs> a more plausible, yeah, absolutely, if only, a more plausible explanation is that there was not a causation, there was simply a correlation. And I think when you look at those time series in detail, it enables you to unpick the difference between correlations and causations. Isn't it interesting that the topic of this podcast is data? Yeah, and yet but we're talking about imagine- people. And we're talking about people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, 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 and you see, that is the grown-up attitude to data. Yes. It's yes. The, it's the actually, you know, I hadn't expected it, the yeah. conversation to no, go no, in this neither way. neither did I. And, but Rick, when, when you and I sit together with clients, we're mainly having human conversations. That's right. And, 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 and I think when you think back over it, it it's, we are talking about people. Yes. And, and that is absolutely appropriate. Yes. You know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about... People in the singular and the plural. We're, we're talking about one person, but we're also talking about groups of people. Yeah. And, and you see, so I firmly believe that the role of data is to be able to crunch a huge amount of decisions and then assimilate it and, and get it into a structure... And and the, and then once you've got that, it allows you to do the really important thing, which is to ask questions. Well, Rick, I, I'm I'm smiling as you're saying this because we, we we've worked together for a while, but we didn't sit down and kind of plan what we were going to say today. And what you're saying there, I'm just looking at my final three points of the notes that I made, and they're almost exactly the same. Right. Okay. <laughs> Because I should, I, I should say to the, um, I should say to um, the listener, yes, um, um, that we are doing this in lockdown, and Tim is in his his bedroom, and yes. I'm in my bedroom, <laughs> yeah. and um, and I'm sure we're not in the same bedroom, and um, so you know we're not even not even in the same room. Yeah, so, yeah, um, that's right. And I think there are a couple of things about this conversation that I wasn't expecting, and this is one of them to to realise that despite the fact that you know we haven't kind of physically seen each other for a couple of months we're thinking along the same lines and what I the note I'd made is that there are three questions that I would have for somebody who is considering implementing a data system the first is what are your critical decisions and judgments what are the critical decisions and judgments that you as an individual or you as an organization need to make what is key to your success secondly what are the processes by which these decisions get made? And thirdly, what information will facilitate skillful, accurate, and fast judgment and decision-making? And when you have answers to those three questions, and only when you have answers to those three questions, then you can go about designing a bespoke data system. And also, I'd go further and to say that that, that once you've got, that you start with the data, mm. you then use the data to ask yourself intelligent questions. You know, what am I good at? Where are my weaknesses? 
how do you know how do I continue to work on my strengths? Yeah. What do I got to do about my weaknesses? And I'll come back to those points. Yeah. But they, it, it, but if they're posed as a set of questions, then it then leads you to think about possible answers. Yeah, and and I think that the role of data is not to give you the answer. The role of data is to force you to ask questions of yourself. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, that data has, you know, that has been oversold Agreed. as providing the answers. Yes. And, and, you know, and, and if only you know, you've got the best form of algorithm, you will get the best answer. No, no. It's that the role of data is to, is to ask intelligent questions yeah. which are relevant and within context. And there's a human and judgment it, to be placed on top of that. Exactly right. Exactly and if I can right. just borrow a topical example, uh, one of the things that the politicians have been saying about this coronavirus is that we are guided by the science. There's been some confusion about the role of the scientist and the role of the politician. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a little bit of a disagreement between the two parties because they both seem to be trying to shift responsibility onto the other one. And what I would say is that the role of the scientist in the coronavirus situation is to come up with an accurate judgment of risk for various scenarios. The role of the politician is to make a moral or values-based decision about what level of risk is acceptable. So the scientist's job is not to make the judgment, it's simply to deliver information. The politician then plays the role of the human and he gets to make the decision. And I think with the use of data, it's the same. That data delivers information, contextualized, processed, understandable information, but then we make decisions on top of that. Exactly right. And, and I, I use a phrase, I have a phrase which I use all the time, is you can't do investments by numbers alone. Yes. You know, it, it is that, is that you can't replace judgment. Yes. And, and that's what this podcast is about, is investment skill. Ex- investment skill, exactly right. Exactly right.